from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 19th. Today, the new tax credit changing how we think about child poverty and a brief history of the reinvention of Bill Gates. On Monday, Biden administration officials made a big announcement. We need to give ordinary families a break, a tax break. Jeff Stein is the White House economics reporter for The Post. He has been covering the expansion of the child tax credit. Talk to editor Alexis Diao. 90% of the families, all middle-class, working-class families, will get this tax cut. It's a one-year cut that reduces your taxes by $3,000 a year for each child you have under the age of 18. Two kids, it's a $6,000 tax cut. And if those kids are under the age of six, they'll actually get $3,600 per child. They said that starting July 15th, tens of millions of parents across the country will begin receiving monthly deposits um, for their children under a new policy uh, approved by the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress in the stimulus package this March. So let's just step back for a minute. Can you explain to me actually what is the child tax credit and kind of like what are its origins and how, you know how did it come to pass? I think it's useful in this discussion to zoom out for a second and look at why the child tax benefit has become such a pressing issue for many Democratic officials over the last really uh, couple decades. And the reason it's grown in prominence is because among developed rich nations, America is, is almost unique in the extent to which we have extremely high levels of child poverty. Of all developed nations in the OECD, America is in the top five, um, depending on how it's measured, um, for child poverty. And this is really about how do we reverse that trend? And the big difference between us and other countries is that America provides very little in benefits to parents and new parents in particular. And so Democrats have been pushing, and finally, after years of trying, um, this March, they got approved through the stimulus package just one year of an expanded child tax credit, which will, for the first time, directly send these monthly payments of $300 per kid, six and under, and $250 per kid per month from six to 17. And that money is really intended to mitigate the tremendous levels of child poverty we have in this country. So, Jeff, I have a question for you. Yes. I think every parent in the U.S. wants to know, including myself, where is my money? Your money is on its way, depending on your adjusted gross income and um, exactly how many kids you're willing to have to claim this benefit. The new child benefit is not going to be for everyone. Individual parents, uh, you know, parents who file individual tax returns who have an AGI of over $75,000 will see a diminished or no benefit, as well as couples who combined earn more than $150,000. The benefit phase is out for those people at the high end of the income distribution. One complicating factor here is that custodial and income status is very variable in this country, and parents will be assessed on their eligibility based on their prior year income returns. Would that be your income tax return for 2019 or 2020? 
that would be your income tax return for the most recent year the IRS has on file. So if you have changes in your income status, as many Americans did over the last year, it's really worth looking at what the IRS is putting out, seeing if you qualify. The IRS is saying it's going to put up these online portals for people to change their benefit status um, and their eligibility criteria. But you know, if you are might be on the cusp of being eligible, it's definitely worth checking out. And how is this actually going to work? What is the timeline? Very good question. What the IRS said on Monday, which was uh, quite a surprise and a welcome surprise to many Democratic officials, was that they believe they will be able to start sending um, monthly checks directly into parents' uh, bank accounts with no action required on their end. Um, They think that they can reach basically 88% of America's children, sort of without any action required, of that 88%, 80% of those will just get the money directly in their bank accounts starting on July 15th, and then the 15th of every month going forward. For the other 20%, uh, they should be able to get the money via a paper check in the mail or a debit card that the IRS will send to people's homes. One of the big, big, big questions here is what happens to people who do not file income taxes regularly? These people tend to be disproportionately poor, and it's very unclear if the IRS has the tools or the mechanisms to be able to reach them. And if they really do struggle to get those benefits to people who are outside of the IRS system, then the anti-child poverty benefits, which have been so heavily touted by the White House, might actually be much less than advertised. The IRS is saying it's going to do all kinds of outreach, homeless organizations, charities, religious groups are going to do everything they can to try to reach those kids. But I think, you know, as a reporter, it's really important. The administration keeps saying and and was eager to tout estimates showing that this plan would cut child poverty in half. A lot of experts I've talked to are beginning to get suspicious that that number was sort of overhyped in an attempt to sell the policy and get Americans excited about it. We need to be uh, really watching with eagle eyes to make sure that the administration is judged for whether it, you know, it is successfully able to pull all of those very, very vulnerable kids out of poverty. So that's a lot of numbers that you're throwing around. Basically, parents are going to start seeing money appear either in their bank accounts or in their mailboxes starting this summer. What is the child tax credit? How is it going to change things? What's really important for people to understand about this policy change is that up until this year, Tens of millions of the poorest families in America did not qualify for the existing child tax credit before this policy. It did exist $2,000 a year. Democrats increased that amount to $3,000 per year. But crucially, they also changed who was eligible. And previously, Americans needed to have a certain amount of income that this benefit would be used to offset their liabilities to the IRS. What this new law says instead is that even if you have no income, you fully qualify for the benefit and the IRS will send you the money regardless. And so for those people, really, this is a tremendous um, increase in their in their annual income and their direct cash subsidies. Experts have told us this will cut child poverty in America in half. This tax cut sends a clear and powerful message to American working families with children. Help is here. We in this country, really since the 80s, uh, since the Reagan revolution, have been averse to providing direct welfare benefits to the very poorest Americans with conservatives and even for many years, Democrats arguing that doing so would provide a work disincentive that people would stay at home, not work, and that that would be bad for the economy. And really in part because of the pandemic and in part because of broader ideological shifts in American politics, we've seen this change in which now policymakers are more and more comfortable with just giving 
giving people directly, even people who aren't working. And so what this is really going to do is allow people to spend money on the basic necessities for raising kids, groceries, diapers, rent. That's the big change here. It's, it's money for people who are at the very bottom of the income spectrum. But again, as I mentioned, the administration will face really difficult challenges in making sure they all get it. What are some of the long-term effects that may happen from this child tax credit? I'm not an expert in child development, but from the studies that I've seen, it seems pretty clear that poverty for children has deep, lasting, lifelong effects. Whether that be education, income, mental health, the evidence seems pretty clear that there's really long-term lasting effects from growing up in poverty. And if the administration is successful at mitigating that, the long-term effects could be immense. However, I will just note that the policy that Democrats approved in March only lasts for one year. It's set to expire um, at the end of this year without further action. Democrats and Biden have said they want to extend that, but Congress, as, as we all know, is quite dysfunctional and it's not clear how or if they'll be able to do that. So if they let this program die after just one year, we'll never really know what the potential benefits could be. Jeff Stein is a White House economics reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Emma Talkoff. On May 3rd, Bill and Melinda Gates said they were going to divorce. They'd been married for 27 years. Came, I think, as a bit of a surprise to folks. Some breaking news on Bill and Melinda Gates just moments ago. The pair tweeting that they are filing for divorce. Bill Gates, I'm just reading from his Twitter here. After a great deal of thought and a lot of work on our relationship, we have made the decision to end our marriage. Certainly taking uh, many people by surprise. No, no, no kind of lead up to this uh, at all, as far as, as, far as well, any of us are First Bezos, uh, now Gates. Jay Green is a reporter for The Post. For the last couple of decades, he's been covering tech in Seattle. And lately, he has turned his attention to this very high-profile divorce and what it means for the Gates Foundation and for Bill and Melinda. You know, they've been together and in many ways they've been the public face of uh, philanthropy, at least in this country, for a long time. And so I think it surprised some folks that, uh, that they decided to break up. What's interesting right now is that it feels like there is this intense focus specifically on Bill Gates, who has had a pretty long and interesting career. And I think it's funny, at least for me as a person of a certain age, to like understand Bill Gates in this moment, because I feel like I grew up knowing that Bill Gates was like an extremely rich person who had done the whole Microsoft thing, but that more recently, and I think really over the last couple of decades, he's really been known for his philanthropy. I think of Bill Gates as the guy who wanted to get water to everyone on planet Earth and doing all these amazing things to solve problems globally and help people out of poverty. And I wonder if that picture that I have is the same picture that you have. Not at all. I mean, it's part of the picture I 
I have, but you know, Martina, I have a few more years on you. <laughs> but when I started writing about Microsoft in 1998, he, you know, Bill hadn't done much philanthropy at the time, or at least much really public philanthropy. And he was much more known as the CEO of Microsoft. And at the time, you may remember, Microsoft was being sued by the federal government. Fundamentally, the issue in uh, this case is what did Microsoft do and what was Microsoft's intent? Um, what the chief executive officer of the corporation says is obviously relevant to both of those issues. It was seen by many in the industry as a, as a bully. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, there were folks who were complaining about, in particular, about Bill Gates and his tactics and his approach. And, and what were his tactics and his approach? I mean, it was take no prisoners, right? You had a lot of competitors who felt as though Microsoft set the tone and the terms for how the technology industry was run. And that was really coming from from Bill Gates. And it's in some ways, it's hard to think of right now, because while there are a handful of large technology companies that we think of at sort of the the apex of power in technology, you know, you might think Google and Apple and Amazon and, and Facebook and, and maybe even Microsoft, too. Back then, it was Microsoft. Mm. There really was no company like Microsoft that had the sort of power it did. And if you were a competitor of Microsoft's or even a partner, you often you were complaining about the way the company ruled the industry. What you're describing is so surprising because I feel like I had this sense now that compared to a Mark Zuckerberg or an Elon Musk or whatever, that, that Bill Gates is kind of the adult in the room, someone who has a, a more sober sense of the responsibilities of being a tech giant. And it seems strange that he actually started out very similar with the the same kind of tactics and attitudes that we uh, decry in these like tech executives now. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you may think of him as the adult in the room now, but I think there are some folks in the industry who would see him as the prototype for those other folks. And not only just the way he competes, but also the way he ran the company. I mean, Bill is famous for saying to employees who presented ideas that he thought weren't particularly good in company meetings, he would say, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. And, and often he would actually sprinkle in a profanity that I won't use on this family podcast. But he's even joked about this. I was famous for saying, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And, you know, of course, people were like, but how could it be? It was only two hours ago. He heard this other one. Is this one really stupider than all those other ideas he heard before? That's ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not doing this thing. Bill used to say, you know, the best thing about Microsoft is, is everyone can work part time and you get to choose which 12 hours you're in the office. No, you don't understand. You, you, didn't, you, didn't, you guys never understood. You never understood the first thing about this. I could just be so, so extreme. You know, it was like I knew everybody's license plate. So I could walk through the parking lot and say, okay, who's here and who's not here. It was common that he would say things like that, and he was known for it. He was a very, very demanding and very, very tough boss. Wait, so then how did the Bill Gates makeover happen? Like, what was the moment where he was like, this is no longer how I want to be viewed by the world? I would say there wasn't a particular moment. In some ways, maybe it started in 2000 as he gave up the CEO job at Microsoft to Steve Ballmer and ran operations a little bit less, but it continued. Uh, in 2008, he left the company and became full-time or as full-time as Bill Gates is, if anything, at the foundation. And I think that's sort of where he very much focused on 
the philanthropic work as a primary job. And I think that work really started to help burnish his image as, you know, a philanthropist who, quite honestly, does some really noble and notable things. But I think his public image really changed in the 2000s as he began to focus more and more on his philanthropic work. And as folks like you honestly came to know him more through that than through your Windows PC. And do you think that was like an intentional effort of this, like, yes, you have more money than God, so maybe it would be helpful to use it to to help people. But But do you think that there was an intentional part of that that was like, I can use these philanthropic organizations and efforts to essentially make myself new? Well, I wouldn't be so cynical to say he didn't care about his philanthropy because I think he very much did. I mean, I think he would talk about how, you know, he was a steward of this enormous wealth and needed to do good with it. And so I think he believes that. But I also think he realizes that, you know, he is a subject of history. Um, There are going to be folks who will be studying him in the same way that you or I may have studied Andrew Carnegie. Uh, And so I think that is that matters to him and i he's you know he's worked very hard at trying to develop an image you know that i think people you know, want to like so then fast forward to this news now why do you think this has been so shocking to hear about these two rich people getting divorced you know i think part of the shock was the revelation uh that bill gates had an affair now According to his PR folks, it was something that happened about 20 years ago and ended amicably. It's unclear when it ended, you know, but the the point is it was with a Microsoft employee and, you know, the person who had the affair reported it to HR uh, and that ultimately made its way to the board. So that's the part I think that's shocking. You know, Bill Gates stepped down from the board around that time. His PR folks say it was unrelated, but It's a little surprising that this person, who I think has been seen as doing a lot of social good in the world, may have engaged in some actions that aren't all that good. Uh, And so I think the question really is, did he use his position of power in a way that was abusive? And that's the thing that I think is going to need to be answered over the next, you know, several weeks and months. And then there's also the news about Bill Gates's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and there have been reports that, you know, Gates has had 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 a relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, who folks probably remember as a convicted sex offender who took his own life while in custody. Um, Gates has acknowledged that he met with Epstein uh, a number of times. There's been subsequent reporting that suggests the relationship was closer than you know, Gates and his PR folks have acknowledged. And I think there's been more reporting about that, that Gates's PR people has, have pushed back on. So to the that is sort of the extent to which Bill Gates has commented uh, on the latest batch of news. So then what does the future hold in store for both this philanthropic organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but also Bill Gates himself? Like, where does he go from here? Well, let me start with the foundation. So the foundation has said it will continue to operate with Bill and Melinda as co-chairs. And Warren Buffett is the third sort of member of the board that is guiding their giving. So that will continue even though Bill and Melinda are going to get a divorce. The foundation has also funded somewhere north of $50 billion dollars. 
That money is irrevocable, so it will remain in the foundation regardless of what happens with Bill and Melinda. It's conceivable to me that their future giving may go uh, in other directions, but the foundation's got a boatload of money and that ain't changing. Um, as for Bill Gates, I think it's going to be fascinating. Listen, you know, there are a lot of people who have raised questions who are concerned about whether or not uh, he did abuse his powers, I mentioned before. I think there's, you, you know, that that's going to need to get addressed in one way or another. How it gets addressed, uh, I don't know. What is your takeaway from reporting on this story? You know, years ago, um, Bill Gates's good friend Warren Buffett once said, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. I can't tell you that Bill Gates has lost his reputation at this point, uh, but it's been tarnished, and it was tarnished pretty darn quickly. I mean, so much so that younger folks who remember Gates only really for his philanthropy are scratching their heads and feel like they've gotten a little bit of whiplash as they think about him. And I think his his reputation probably has taken a hit. Now, how long that lasts and how big of a hit it is, I guess we'll see. But it is pretty astonishing how how quickly it has changed. Jay Green is a tech reporter for The Post. Maggie Penman produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. And we have great news. Post Reports is now a Webby Award winner. We won for Best Episode of a News and Politics Podcast for our story, The Life of George Floyd. So thank you to all the listeners who voted for us. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.